This is Together, an Ada Bible Church podcast about the world of marriage, where we attempt to invite you to explore the ways marriage works and doesn't work. From practical ways of learning to biblical inspiration, we invite you to listen to other professionals and couples to help enrich your marriage. Welcome Together listeners. Uh, we have Andy here today in the in the Together studio at Ada Bible Church, um, and I am being joined by uh, one John Eklund. So let me tell you a little bit about John before we start a conversation with him here. So John, uh, John is a pastor. He is also a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, he's, he's done quite a bit of speaking, and he is an author. He uh, is the author and founder of what's called Recovery Alive, which is a recovery Recovery curriculum and program that uh, that is based on twelve step and is a, a Christian based program. Um, I'll let John tell us a little bit more about that. Um, but but all that to say, John is uh, very credentialed and a very experienced guy, and we are thrilled to have him here on the podcast. So, John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, and nobody's ever called me credentialed before. <laughs> And and you are. It's true. Um, yeah. So so John, uh, tell tell us a little about yourself. So you're you're not necessarily from around here. A lot of the the listeners to together come from Ada Bible Church. Come from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, where okay. where are you from? Yeah, I'm originally from Duluth, Minnesota, and I've moved around quite a bit. I went to college in Springfield, Missouri, at the Mecca of the Assemblies of God out in Springfield wow. at Evangel University. Met my wife, and she and I moved to Delaware. Uh, lived in Delaware for about seven years, and then uh, moved to West by God, Virginia. That's my <laughs> first full-time ministry opportunity out in the mountains of West Virginia. And then nice. um, now live in North Carolina. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, where oh, okay. it is awfully warm for November. I, I miss <laughs> uh, I miss the the North. Yeah, I'll tell you around here, we're all looking to get down to Raleigh, North Carolina around February. Come on, come on. Yeah, we're, we're three hours from the beach, three hours from the mountains. It's pretty nice. Nice. Good. Nice spot. Cool, John. So tell us about, uh, tell us about your work history. Um, you said you've, you've had mm-hmm. some different ministries kind of around the country and, uh, and doing ministry now in North Carolina. Yeah, so I started out as a social worker. I got my undergrad in criminal justice, believe it or not. <laughs> I thought I wanted to be a, a police officer, and my wife said, "You know, I don't. I'm not feeling that." Which I was like, "Well, <laughs> I wish I would have known that before." I, right? Could have <laughs> told me. I got that. <laughs> yeah, right. And I had kind of gotten criminal justice just to get out of school. I, I, I played football and kind of just majored in my wife and football mm. during school. So I was just trying to get out of school, got a criminal justice degree, and I had gotten into an internship where. I was involved with some some group therapy right before I graduated. Just I had a juvenile justice internship for my last six months, and I did this uh, I did this group therapy stuff with some some juvenile inmates. And when I was sitting in that group and watching that therapist work, and I was kind of just I would help him get the kids out of the out of the juvenile detention center and bring mm-hmm. them over to the group. Sure. And I sat in that, I sat in that group and these are 15, 16, 17 year old, uh, kids who had, had sexually offended mm. other kids that they were, they were in juvenile detention because of some terrible things they'd done. Sure. 
And they had to talk about those things and work through them with this therapist. And they were thrown away. They were the dregs of society. And I watched the way this therapist worked with them. And I just had that kind of that moment where I was like, I think this is it. I think mm. I actually think this is what I would love to do. And, and wow. so social work came came to me and, and I, I worked child protective services as a family crisis therapist for about five, six years and saw a lot. Wow, also yeah. had a lot of opportunities to learn about how to be a good therapist, just got thrown to the wolves. And I was sure. doing therapy as an undergrad, um, uh, graduate with, with very little training. <laughs> I go into these homes and work with parents and do family therapy with them. And, wow. So were you working so for CPS actually, while you were I was in working school? for a division, of, yep, division of family services, so there's investigation. So the kids, you know, parents would get investigated, kids get removed from the home or would be um, kind of red flagged as at risk. And okay. then they would send me in to fix it. Wow. Talk about codepe- codependency. So yeah. <laughs> I go in there and think I could, I could fix this thing. I go in and do the best I could and yeah. use family system uh, principles. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed doing that work, um, but it was highly stressful and yeah. took it home with me quite a bit. Yeah, and I, that's intense I, work. I now have four daughters, and so I go home to to my girls and hug them real tight. And, mm-hmm. um, but but then during that period of time, um, I felt a, a calling into full time ministry, and just a series of events, I found myself. Uh, heading to West Virginia to do full-time ministry is, is almost like a social worker in a church. And West Virginia is, uh, West Virginia is a place that a lot of missionaries go to. Appalachia is a, it's almost third world country kind of conditions. And so when I went into that, that world, I I brought my social work skills with me and then Mm -hmm. I brought ministry and I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of uh, recovery work out there. I, dis- I discovered this Christ-centered 12-step ministry called Celebrate Recovery. Oh, yeah. And I brought Celebrate Recovery into the church that I was at in Nutter, Fer- Nutter Fort, West Virginia, Clark- okay. Clarksburg, West Virginia area. And then uh, I did some some just benevolent outreach, food pantry, closed, uh, uh, closed closet kind of stuff. And, sure. and um, I was just doing outreach ministry out there. And then... Uh, and then just got very connected with Celebrate Recovery. Actually, ended up being employed by Saddleback Church. Got a, a contract with them to, oh, yeah. to work as a national director for Celebrate Recovery. So I was with Celebrate Recovery for a good 10, 12 years working for them. Wow! And then, um, then this is the this. Believe it or not, this is a this is a short version. And then ended sure. up uh, getting called out um, here to North Carolina about eight years ago, and. Mm-hmm. Um, during COVID, I was running Celebrate Recovery. During COVID, mm-hmm. Celebrate Recovery didn't really pivot on their stance on online ministry. And oh. we were running, uh, we run a Recovery Alive program now that sure. uh, our recovery program uh, on a Friday night averages about four to 500 people on a Friday night. And so we were like, when COVID hit and churches were shutting down, we're like, we really need this online yeah. piece. Yeah. And so I, I parted ways with Celebrate Recovery, okay. started our own ministry called Recovery Alive, which has a much more uh, robust online platform. Okay. And that's how Recovery Alive was, was born, wrote, wrote my Recovery Alive handbook, 
And sure. the rest is history. I'm, I'm running wow. Recovery Live out of our church on Friday nights. It's online uh, and in person and have all kinds of groups coming out of it. Yeah. Um, I'm also a do therapy now. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, work at a place called 180 Counseling, do about 20 hours of counseling a week. Wow. And um, and then just work for the church, do whatever they ask me to do yeah. here at Temple City Church, clean toilets or Man. sweep floors or do whatever. Look at that. Man, 20, 20 clients a week, that's uh, that's around here, at least considered full-time counseling. So it's it sounds like you have uh, pretty close to three full-time jobs around there, John. Pretty much. <laughs> something, uh, something along those lines. <laughs> I, I have to say our church has been so uh, understanding of, mm. of what the work God has called me to do. And, and our, our pastor here has a vision for broken lives and, and understands that when I pour into recovery live, I'm pouring into the church. And mm. so it's, it's been a blessing to have a, a church that understands its mission. Um, yeah. Our mission is to, to go after the least of these. Mm. And, and what Paul says, is, there's a bunch of sinners out there and I'm the worst. Yeah. And yeah. that's the, that's, that's our, that's our church is a, a bunch of, um, beggars telling other beggars where to mm. find bread. That's it. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, programming can be great as far as it can go, but, um, yeah, it's ultimately about, about making disciples, right? It's about uh, bringing people to Christ. So. And how, and how we, and how we make disciples too. I, I think that if, if you're familiar with Peter Schizero's work on emotionally healthy spirituality, this mm. idea to, to, to really take care of the heart that the gospel is that we're trying to plant the seed of the gospel in yeah. the heart is that soil. And we gotta, we gotta make sure the soil can receive it. And a lot yeah. of times that soil is, is kind of messed up from, from addiction or messed up from family dysfunction, mm -hmm. from abuse, trauma. And, and so I love the parable of the sower. That's, that's how we kind of look at things. It's the parable of the sower. The seed is perfect. The message of the kingdom is perfect, but it's the soil that needs prepped. But a lot of times we, as churches, we, we spend so much time working on the seed, making sure the seed is presentable and the seed yeah. is perfect, but, sure. uh, that <laughs> we don't spend enough time pre preparing the soil, the mm -hmm. soil of the heart of those who walk into the building, who just we can throw seeds at them all day, but if, if they got to, you know, if they've been abused by their father and we say, your father loves you, mm. it's, it's, that's a tough sell. You yeah. know, it's tough to give them the gospel if they don't, if they don't equate father to a loving, benevolent person in their life. Yeah. And so that's just for an example. So that, that's yeah. the work that we try to do. Yeah. I feel like people, people, you hear the phrase, uh, meet people where they're at all the time. Um, you know, and, and I feel like that's, you're describing it. Uh, more robustly than what what people typically do. That idea of meeting meeting people where they're at is not just like, uh, oh, oh, you have you have this thing in your life. We'll just let you keep that in your life. It's it's recognizing right. the impact of those things in people's lives and how that actually impacts the message we're trying to give them. Yeah, and that that's discipleship. That that's actually not a program, a siloed mm -hmm. program for those people. You know, we it's great to have grief share and divorce care and and things like reboot, which is for veterans, and oh, yeah. those programs are great. But what if the church just assumed that every person had some sort of struggle, something that was keeping them from being able to fully engage the gospel? Mm -hmm. Some part of their soil has been disrupted, and mm -hmm. we just assumed that was true. And when somebody walked in the door, we just said, "We love that you're here, but." 
are you okay? How are you doing? Like, is there anything you need emotionally to help you to really receive everything that God has for you? Yeah. And that, that's what I think we've not done maybe such a good job as, as sure. the church to tell people that, that it's okay to struggle. Mm. You could struggle and love Jesus and, and work on those issues of, of, of one of them being codependency, one of many, one yeah. of many yeah, issues John, that people... That's good. That's yeah. The idea of, of, um, you're coming in broken in some way and, and we, we know that and, and we're not, we're not, uh, looking at, yeah, this is just for, for, like you said, those people, you know, specific That's people, right. even with specific types of sins, like those ones that we go, we have programs for those. It's like, and that's right. When we talked about recovery alive, I think I asked you like, you know, what, who is it for? Um, you know, and, and actually I'll let you, I'll let you answer that for our listeners too. <laughs> who, who is recovery alive for? Yeah, it's everybody. And, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's this idea that I'm sure if you've been in the church a while, you've heard that we don't <clears> want to be a hospital for saints, but a hospital or a, a hotel for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Yeah. And if, if we truly are a hospital for sinners and that that hospital is um, a place where the culture is such, I'm going to walk into a hospital. Imagine walking into, a, walk into a hospital and uh, a nurse comes up to you and says, you know, hey, what's going on? Or, what are you here for? And you're like, oh, I'm just I'm just hanging out. <laughs> I'm, just, I heard <laughs> I'm here for the coffee. Heard there's good cookies, you know? right? <laughs> exactly. You know, it's the church assumption should be that's when when folks are walking in there, that, that they're wounded mm-hmm. and that we are a place of healing and that you're either in, in my mind, you're either uh in the church as a healer or you're broken. One of those Mm -hmm. two things you're either working on, but even as a healer, you're continuing to check in on your health, making sure that you're doing the things you need to do. Um, And so recovery, unfortunately carries that uh, stigma of Mm -hmm. you must be an addict or, you know, drugs and alcohol is what recovery is for. Mm -hmm. And we just, we, we're, we're under the assumption that the body, the, the physical body, what, what we were, uh, what, what we, the word says is, is fallen. This part of us is fallen. It doesn't change. It doesn't, I was talking to a pastor about deliverance and, and, and in my, as far as what I read in scripture, mm-hmm. we don't get rid of our flesh until we go to heaven and we will be in constant battle with this part of ourselves that Paul says he has to die to every single day. It's trying to kill us. And uh, Satan is our enemy. The mm-hmm. world's our enemy, but, but the flesh is as well. And so whatever it is that is our predisposition, whether nature or nurture, yeah. our, we, we have to constantly be pushing against that broken part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, it's too, too easy at times for us as the church. And I'm not, I'm, I, I love the church. I am yeah. part of the church. Yeah, I am absolutely. a pastor. Mm-hmm. It's just too easy for us sometimes to go, Hey, you know, I went to the altar, got saved. I got, we're done. Mm-hmm. And that's not at all scriptural. Right. The, the salvation is a starting line, that's not a start. finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm preaching to the preacher, yeah, but that, hey, that, that's, that's great. That's I, I mean, I, I love what you're preaching. I, yeah, I think it's great. And, and you're really setting, setting us up. Well, I mean, we, um, 
you know, we have a, a topic that we're going to talk about today. And, and, uh, at some point, at, right, some, at, point, some, right. at some point we'll get there, <laughs> but, but I mean, you're setting it up. It's like, this is one of those that I think, um, well, after having some conversation with you, I think is, is one that a lot of people come in struggling with. And, uh, so, so without further ado, here we go. Our, our topic for today is, is codependence. So, um, so, so John wrote this, uh, this curriculum recovery alive and, uh, and it, it focuses on a lot of different things, but one of the things, you know, working with a lot of people from recovery or in recovery, um, and like he said, some from, from every different area, uh, that he's developed this, this kind of larger view of this concept of codependence. Now I'll be honest with you guys. When, when I came into this conversation with John, so, so there are a lot of cl- clinical terms that get thrown around and, uh, and clinical terms end up becoming common vernacular. Sometimes it feels a little bit hyperbolic, like we're, we're going to use this term. Um, so a big one right now is narcissism. Um, you're mm-hmm. narcissistic. I, I can't say selfish because I want to emphasize it. So I'm going to say you're narcissistic and, and then it sort of loses its meaning. Now everybody's narcissistic, um, or like OCD is another one that just being particular has now made everybody OCD. And mm-hmm. uh, another one of those, in my view, prior to talking to John, was uh, was this idea of codependency. And it just felt like, man, okay, everybody's codependent. Well, maybe people are just relying on each other. Maybe people are just leaning into each other. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're built for community. Um, but I'll tell you, John and I had a conversation and he... He turned things around a little bit for me. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited. Maybe, maybe there are some of you out there who think the same way that, you know, codependency isn't really a, an issue or it's, uh, it's not something that I struggle with. Um, but maybe John, like he did me, will uh, will show you the way. So help, help us understand what we're talking about here. So yeah. co- codependency, um, define it for us. Well, like I told you, it's pretty it's pretty tough to define because how, of how broad it is. And I think I told, this is the way that I start to describe it is, Mm -hmm. is that if I, if I asked you to define irony, it would be tough to just sit there and try to figure out how do I define Mm -hmm. irony, but you sure do know it when you see it. Sure. Or when you hear it, you go, now that that's irony, that's ironic. And so codependency is something a lot, a lot of folks would say that that feels like codependent behavior, people pleasing, Mm -hmm. approval addiction, when somebody is enabling a loved one who's an addict, um, those are just some examples of uh, codependency. And I, I have this quote from uh, Henry Cloud. And, and by the way, let me just give a resource out to your listeners. Sure. If you're interested in this subject, the the best uh, faith-based work out there, I think, around codependency is a book called Boundaries mm. by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge bestseller. Um, they've sold like 10 bazillion copies of that thing. And uh, it's a, it's a great resource, but uh, Henry cloud says codependency occurs when we don't have an accurate awareness of our boundaries and behaviors. And we allow someone else's needs to control and take over our lives. Mm. And it's, it's a lot of ownership issues, taking responsibility for other people's emotions, Mm. other people's behaviors, Sure. And that happens um, in some ways that you and I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll dive into sure. the, the, the origination of this, um, though we're not 100 percent sure we're, we're you know, we're, we can't get to the exact moment where the first time somebody used this language. 
but uh, it's generally have have thought to have evolved out of co-alcoholic. It did come out of the recovery world when alcoholism and and other drug dependencies began to be spoken of as chemical dependence instead of addict. And Mm -hmm. so now somebody who is trying to love an addict would be called, you know, trying to love a dependent becomes a co-dependent. I, sure. I'm codependent on, on that, that substance because mm. I am dependent, I'm dependent on this other person well, to bring sense. me happiness. The way, the way you're describing it makes sense. Cause you go, all right. So if, if this person is dependent on alcohol and then, and then I, in turn, like you're saying, it, it, I'm I'm cleaning up their messes, or I'm um, doing things to enable that. Then, in turn, I am also dependent on that alcohol. Uh, it kind of yeah, exactly. ends up impacting me in the same way. So that codependent that makes sense where it's where it's coming from. Well, I'll break it down even further. Is, is sure. Bill Wilson found founded Alcoholics Anonymous way back in <laughs> in those early 1900s. He was a Wall Street uh, stockbroker who who was a an alcoholic um, to the to the worst degree. He was mm-hmm. hospitalized a couple of times. Bad, bad shape. Had a spiritual experience in a Manhattan hospital. God changed his life. He um, was connected to a fellow who was going to a Bible study called the Oxford Group. Okay. And out of that Bible study, Bill started opening his heart to God. He was an atheist, and in that hospital room, he finally surrendered to Christ. And out of that came the 12 steps. Mm. The 12 steps were founded in that original Oxford group's connection to the Beatitudes in Matthew five. And so, so Bill starts holding these meetings in his house and uh, it's this beautiful thing, but then he's married. Bill's married to this lady, this lady named Lois and Lois was very happy of course that her husband got sober, but at the same, at the same time, he took all of that energy and all of that focus and addicts are compulsive and don't, you know, they just, they don't have a good awareness at times of the people around. So, so he started like putting all of his energy into these groups and neglecting his <laughs> wife once again. And so Lois, her biography, and I think it's called when love is not enough. Mm. And in that book, she talks about how she got really angry because this new group, he became almost like um, addicted to this group. And pretty soon mm-hmm. she's feeling resentful. But then that guilt and shame where she goes, I shouldn't yeah. feel resentful, right? Because my husband is is now free of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And she describes, just sweet, sweet lady, describes a night where she confronts him because he's, he's going to another group. And it's actually in his house. And all these men are coming over and interrupting their lives. And, and she's, she's, trying to talk to him and he's getting ready and he's putting on his tie and she's mm-hmm. saying, listen to me. You, you're not paying any attention to me. And she's yelling and screaming at him. And he just gives her a silent treatment and begins to walk out the room. And she said, she says she grabbed the first thing she could get a hold of. It was her high heeled shoe mm-hmm. and she chucked it at him. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, and, and just realized like she's losing her, she's becoming a, a uh, to her language, like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. He leaves the room. She walks out onto the porch to get some air while her husband's having a recovery group in their parlor. She's out on the porch and she looks out and she sees all these cars lined up where all these men have come into this meeting 
with her husband. Sure. His cars are lined up. She looks a little closer into that, the, into those cars. In the first window, she sees somebody sitting in the passenger seat, waiting for the guy to come back. Who's in that passenger seat? But it's it's his wife. Wow. Right? It's it's one of these guys' wife. And then she looks in the next car, and then all these cars that were waiting outside had women in them. No way. Of, alcoholics right and so what she does is she goes i'm gonna have my own meeting <laughs> so she goes she goes and raps on a window and the first lady became like a lifelong friend of hers rolls down the window she says why don't we have a group you know mm-hmm. almost like peevishly almost yeah. almost resent let's have a group right. well they ended up having a big old group of like 10 12 women in their kitchen and that's where Al-Anon was birthed wow and through Al-Anon, huh. Lois says, this is a great quote from, from Lois Wilson. She says, as she worked her own program, she said, it struck me so clearly. She says, I was as addicted to Bill as he was to alcohol. Mm. Wow. I was as addicted to my husband as he was to alcohol. Mm. And so probably, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm tossing out, the definition probably a little early for me, the best definition of codependency is people addiction. Mm. In Christian terms, we would say people uh, in, in Christian terms, I'd say people worship. It's people worship that they become the central theme, central focus, yeah. central work of our lives. Yeah. And that's wow. codependency. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, for, for just for listeners who don't know, so Al-Anon is the it, it's kind of the um, for the friends and family of those who are in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's right. That's that's in, in case anybody yeah, listening good. didn't know that. But so um, they have a, kind of a, a program they work through too. And it sounds like you know from from your story there, it sounds like it's uh, it's trying to recover from a people addiction in some ways. Yeah, and, it's it's how do we get to a place where we admit that I'm struggling mm-hmm. in the same way because it's, I don't know, it's, it's harder sometimes to admit that people are our addiction than mm-hmm. to admit that a substance is our addiction. It's just a lot more subtle. Sure. It's, uh, it's a, it, and it's also kind of, it, with Christians, it's tricky because we would say, well, isn't that what we're, aren't we supposed mm-hmm. to love right. people or like God, um, God says, above it, ourselves. Yeah, God says it's not not good for man to be alone. Okay, so you know, so I'm leaning on people. What's wrong with that? Yeah, yeah, and and for for Christians, it it's it's interesting because we <clears throat> can feel deeply this empathy, this pain of watching people. Well, you don't have to be a Christian, but. As a Christian, you really get behind the idea that that I get to minister to people who, who are struggling if you're an empath. And I think a lot of the people who struggle the most with codependency are usually have a, a deep, deep empathy. They, they're empaths. They have a gift in that area. Yeah. But I remember one preacher once, once said, and I'll never forget it because it, it was very true for me. He said, many times our greatest weaknesses are our strengths being abused. Mm. And my strength is yeah. empathy. And 
empathy is abused terribly in codependency because it's used then to take me to a place where not only do I want to help people, but now I'm responsible for those folks getting better. It's no longer about it. it No, and this is, I'm probably going a little fast here, but it's no longer about, I want them to get better, but their struggle hurts me. And I want to relieve my own pain by relieving theirs. And that's selfish. Right. Which is hard to wrap our heads around. So I say, that, yeah, is that right? Yes. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it should be selfish. Right? It's like, well, I, I just care about them. How is that selfish? And it's like, yeah, you care about them so much that you won't let them experience the hurt they might need to experience. Right. And which, which leads us to, you know, you and I talked about scripturally, what, what are some yeah. foundations of yeah. this? And this leads us to, one of the great boundaries that has ever been given in the history of mankind. (laughs) (laughs) And it was by the loving, merciful, compassionate, meek savior, Jesus Mm -hmm. drops a boundary that many of us would be deeply offended by in a conversation he has with Peter. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter is so relatable, isn't he? I mean, I think all of us go, we appreciate Peter because he reminds us of ourselves. Yeah. He's constantly, he's got foot and mouth <laughs> disease, right? Yep. He's always putting his foot in his mouth and he, um, kind of impulsive, very human. Yeah. And, uh, so Jesus at one point in time is having a conversation with his disciples and he's telling them, and this is Matthew 16. He says, uh, he says, listen, guys, uh, I've told you this before, but I, I, I've come for one purpose, and that is it's it's to suffer, mm-hmm. and it's it's to die. It's to die on the cross. I'm, I'm, he's predicting it. He's telling him, and he's saying, "But, but I, I am coming back." And he's mm-hmm. having this conversation about what's what's coming, so that they're not surprised, which <laughs> they are anyway. Are, which, right? uh, you know, <laughs> they still are. It's, it's a Seems to be a waste of breath, but he's telling him, look, I've got to die. I've got to die. Mm-hmm. I've got to be given up to, to the, the authorities and I'm going to die. And Peter, who is just like us. And, and if we read the Bible, we, I, I, I really want to read it as somebody who goes, what would I do? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how would I, if I'm, I want to be in that situation. So I'm in that situation. I'm going to do the same thing Peter does. If a friend of mine is saying, Hey, John, tomorrow I'm going to get hit by a car. I'd be like, well, no, you're going to stay here. Yeah, you're going to stay here in my house. I'm going to, we're going to stop this from happening. Yeah. And so it's totally relatable that Peter would be like, you know what? No, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And so he's mm-hmm. he's saying this, which probably not a good idea to to rebuke Jesus, which is what the <laughs> right. what the translation is. He rebukes Jesus, right. and. Uh, He's like, no, no, I'm not going to let this happen. And Jesus pulls out this boundary and and it must have been like a punch in the face. Mm -hmm. He, Peter hears Jesus say, get behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. Oh, ouch. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. And uh, what follows it is very important. This is uh, Matthew 16, 23. Uh, Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
Mm-hmm. One translation I think says, for you don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. So what, what's happening here is Peter is trying to prevent suffering. But, but here's why it's a problem. It's because Jesus had to suffer in order to be personally redeemed. He hadn't sinned, but that was his job. He had to be obedient to the Father. He didn't do anything except what the Father told him to do. So he's going to go, and he's going to go fulfill his purpose, mm-hmm. and he needed to do that in order for the world to be saved. And here's Peter trying to prevent it from happening because he doesn't want to see Jesus suffer. And I would say this, is that codependence, we are trying to prevent suffering when suffering is the very thing that produces most, if not all, redemption. Mm, man. When somebody who is an addict, this is the easiest one for us to wrap our heads around. You have a son who is an addict and the mother is giving him money because she doesn't want to see him suffer. Mm-hmm. When she is letting him have a place to sit, stay, even though he's making mistake after mistake. When, when, when she gets him a new car, when he wrecks his car, she doesn't want him to suffer. But yeah. unless he suffers, if he doesn't hit bottom, he will continually cycle through his addiction. And then yeah. we call that enabling. Man. And I, so, so that, that story to me is Jesus going, you need to let me suffer because suffering is the pathway to redemption. And if you try to prevent suffering in me, what you're really doing is you're saying, I don't want to watch you suffer. And therefore I'm going to prevent suffering so I can get that relief. And that ultimately is selfish. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you, you mentioned that story to me the last time we chatted and I think that's what, that's what did it for me. That's what convinced me. This is a, (laughs) this is a real issue and this is something that isn't just a clinical term thrown around, but man, man, the, the heart of Peter by no means should we let you, let you, you know, hang on a cross. No way are we going to let that happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And it's like, that's, that's severe. That it's, that's intense. That is a, yeah, I've, I I must say, I've never said that to someone. Um, you know, it's a pretty, that would be hurtful. (laughs) (laughs) I've wanted to. Right. Right. So, so in your marriage, if you're feeling like I need to put up some boundaries, maybe let's start with some softer ones, but, but, uh, yeah, that's a little easier boundary. (laughs) You may need to get there, but yeah, just that (laughs) idea of the heart of it is, is, you know, what we would see on the outside is such a good thing. You care about this person, you don't want to see them suffer. I think it really kind of shows us two things. One, uh, it, we're all, we're all probably doing this, right? We, we all, yeah. um, you know, it, with, with what feels like good intention, what you're pointing out, John is ultimately selfishness, but what feels like good intention are trying to prevent people from suffering. And I think the second thing that, that your description here and what, how you're describing it points out is how hard this really is, that it's, Mm-hmm. It, it's not an easy thing to sit by and watch no. somebody you love suffer. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, to, to, to be Peter and just watch Jesus hang on a cross, um, man, he, he wants to prevent that for Jesus, but like you're saying also for himself, um, that is an incredibly terrible thing. I, you know, many of us would probably say, I'd rather be the one on the cross. Yeah. You know, and, and, and yeah. the mom, the mom of the addict, same kind of thing. Like I, I would rather be on the street than see my son on the street. And it's, it's, uh, well, I hear that. I do. I hear that all the time. It's just, 
I can let a lot of parents know these concepts. I can say, well, let me explain to you what's going on here just right. from an outsider's point of view. And what a lot of times I've heard parents say is, I know what I'm doing, but I just, I'm not, I'm not going to stop. I will not let my child be homeless. And I, I would want to bring in another story, which a lot of us would say, this seems to be like the most compassionate parental story that you could find in the Bible. And that's the story of the prodigal son. Mm. You all know the story of the prodigal son. He tells his dad, I wish you were dead. Basically Mm -hmm. that's what he's asking for his inheritance. He's saying, I just, just give me my inheritance. I don't want anything to do with you. Gets his inheritance, goes and he blows it. The Bible says I'm wild living. He's out in crack houses. The prodigal's out there with prostitutes. He's out there doing his thing. He blows Mm -hmm. all the money, all of it. And pretty soon he is working on a pig farm. He's at the lowest of the low. And we know his father, according to this parable, was probably a very rich man. He's got servants, so we know at least he's he's in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. But at no point in time do you see this father looking, going out and trying to find his son. Mm-hmm. You don't see him scouring the neighborhoods, busting down doors, making inquiries. You don't hear about the father at all. All you hear about is the son blowing his inheritance and living on a pig farm. And Mm -hmm. at one point in time where I think the whole story turns, the hinge on which this story turns, is he gets to a place where, where the Bible, Jesus says, he would have loved to have eaten the pods. If he could just eat the Mm -hmm. pods of what the pigs were eating, just He wanted to eat pig slop, right? but he couldn't even do that. And it says, because here's the, here's where it all turns. No one would give him anything. That's where it all turns. No one would bail him out. Mm -hmm. Nobody would enable him. He had to hit bottom. Then it says he has this moment of clarity. He says, well, at least my father servants eat better than this. He humbled himself. He didn't go, well, I'm my dad's son. I'm going to go, you know, show up and be like, Hey dad, what the heck? Yeah. He humbled himself to become a servant of the father. And then we know the whole story. His father sees him a far way off, runs to him. But up to that Mm -hmm. point, no one would give him anything. And that's what is necessary for, for moments of clarity to happen for folks who are living in dysfunction. Mm -hmm. If they don't get to a place where they feel their pain and they feel bottom, we codependents are throwing mattresses on the bottom all the time for people (laughs) to have nice soft landings. Right. right. And so I've I've begged parents, let him stay in jail. Let him stay in jail, please. Mm. Um, because and, and it, so just being yeah. in a place where we can recognize that most change happens when we feel the pain of our consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna we're having a, a gala for Recovery Alive. We open uh, we've opened a, a couple of Recovery Alive homes, um, transition homes for folks coming out of prison, and oh, yeah. and we're having a, a gala, and we're, we're gonna have Daryl Strawberry at our our gala. It's in February. If any of your listeners want to come on out, yeah. hang out, or contribute, they can do that. Um, but I saw uh, he was speaking, um, I think he was speaking at a church in Texas or something. And uh, he said, um, he said, we can pick our sins, but we cannot pick our consequences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah. Is that we can choose our sins, 
but get ready because those consequences are sometimes not what we expect. And yeah. so we have to allow the people in our lives who are suffering and struggling to mm-hmm. feel the consequences of their behavior. And um, that's pretty, pretty vital. And I, I'll, I'll say this about a lot of parents and any enablers. Yeah. Um, in, in the book uh, by Cloud and Townsend, they, they say um, many times as enablers, we are responsible and punished while the people we're trying to help are irresponsible and rewarded. And rewarded. That is codependent. Yeah dysfunction right there mm-hmm. man man so um one thing i want to be aware of here is is we uh you know we're talking about this concept of codependence and and it can be found in so many different areas uh with so many different um kind of kinds of relationships um but we are at together a marriage podcast so i want to make sure we bring mm-hmm. this into the context of marriage yeah. a little bit tell us some about some of the couples that you've worked with um and can i maybe even just more in general how how you see this play out in a marriage um and then and then maybe if if our listeners um recognize that in their marriage what what do you recommend they do yeah so I'll, I'll start with addiction and, and just move out into general areas of uh, misallocation mm. of affection, which ends up being resentment. But when, when you have, if you have an addiction, if you have someone in your, in, in your home, and we'll, we'll use a husband for an example, uh, <laughs> a typical pattern will be um, it, everything in my power as a wife is going to be directed towards how, how do I, how do I fix this? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I, how do I get my husband the help that he needs? Immediately the, the, the thought is, is that I'm responsible to make sure that this person makes good choices, that this person gets the help that they need. And um, right. ultimately what I, work on with couples in these scenarios is that what I, what I would want the wife to do is take ownership of her own choices. So what what is that? What does that look like is, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set a boundary. Initially, I'm going to help the wife set the boundary that, that shows ownership of Mm -hmm. what she is responsible for. Okay. Not, not, she's, she's, you know, as adults, we're responsible for ourselves Mm -hmm. and responsible if we have children for our children. My daughter, when she was 16 years old, she hit a mailbox, uh, driving the car for about the sixth or seventh time she hit a neighbor's mailbox. When the neighbor needed to have that financially taken care of, they didn't go to my daughter. Who'd they (laughs) come to? Right. Me. Mm-hmm. Now my daughter's 24. If she hits a mailbox and my neighbor calls me, I'm going to say, you Better know what? Take it up uh, with her. I'll, let me give you my, <laughs> let me give you my, my daughter's number. Right. So mm-hmm. I am responsible for myself and my children when they're not adults. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible to my wife. I'm mm-hmm. responsible to my friends and my family and my church. That's a big sure. difference sure. to be responsible for and responsible to. And so in a, in a marriage situation, I decide, okay, I'm not responsible for my husband's choices. I'm responsible for mine. So a boundary looks like, Hey, 
you can continue to drink if you want to. Mm. That sounds crazy, right? What, why would I ever say that? Right. Because they can't. <clears throat> right. If they want to, they sure can. Yeah. It's, However, if you do, here's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Do you see that? What a what a what a codependent spouse wants to do is says you can't keep drinking. Mm-hmm. Well, they they sure can. Sure. You have to stop. You need to go to treatment. They don't need to. You need them to. <laughs> you know? sure, sure. So it's not. It's not. Um, it's not taking responsibility for them. It's res- being responsible to them. Saying, "I love you. I'm committed to you." Mm-hmm. Um, however, you continue to use. Here's what's. Here's the consequences for that. Mm-hmm. Is that I can no longer support um, you financially. I, I, yeah. I'm not going to weigh in there because you're taking money from the family. Um, yeah. I'm not going to divorce you, but we may need to separate. You might have to move out for a little while mm-hmm. because I love you. I'm trying to save this marriage. Um, and so s- s- the best way I can describe it is give you an example yeah. and then provide how do we set these boundaries? Yeah. Now, but how, how it can always look is a lot of times we as spouses want to take responsibility for the people in our lives and also blame them mm-hmm. for things that are going on in our lives and say, if you would just do this, then I could be happy. We, we, sure. Codependence, we put a lot of stock in how our spouses behave, addicts or not, mm-hmm. saying you are responsible for my peace and my happiness. And what I really want, and I'm trying to do this quickly. I know we don't have a ton of time. Sure. What I want to say is one of the goals of marriage. Yeah that I think is really important, it could be a podcast all by itself, is autonomy. Marital autonomy is mm. everything. It's so vital. Mm. And when we get enmeshed, we don't know where one spouse starts and another one stops. Mm. That enmeshment is that we are really bad at knowing what I, who I am and what mm. I am, what sure. my role is sure. as a, a, a lover, as a parent, as a uh, my role in in what I do for a living, um, and pretty soon our whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that I am married to this person. Mm. How this person treats me yeah. is the way I look at myself. It's in my identity. Yeah, and uh, so those are some marital themes that that I connect with a lot of times. Yeah, for sure. So so going back to something you said there. So you mentioned. Um, you kind of using, using the example, uh, of, of a husband who's addicted and the wife setting a boundary. And one thing that comes to mind, I've, I've heard this before, uh, is this idea of it, it, it feels like I'm making an ultimatum. You know, it feels like, uh, it's, it's either you do this or I, you know, I leave you or you do this or, and, and, and maybe sometimes that's what it has to be as, you know, I, I, I think, like we talked about the word codependency sometimes causing some issue for me. Um, I think the, the word ultimatum, maybe there are places for that, but it tends to have this really negative connotation. So uh, you've probably heard this before. I'm curious what, what you would say to that. So I want you to think of this word expectations. And then I, I want you, I want you to think about, I love your response on this statement. Unexpressed expectations are premeditated resentments. Mm. That seems unexpressed seems expectations true. are premeditated resentments. Yeah. If I asked you what your marital vows were, would you be able to recite them? No. 
Yeah. I was only married we two make, years ago. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So we make these promises that set up expectations. Mm-hmm. We may call, I don't even care if you, if you want to call it an ultimatum, I don't have an issue with ultimatums because, um, if I said to you, um, uh, I don't want to get personal, but mm-hmm. if your wife cheats on you, mm-hmm. are there consequences for that? Sure. Do you need to tell her, look, if you cheat on me, here are those consequences. You need to tell her that, or do you think you have to tell her that? I, I would hope she would know there would be severe consequences. <laughs> Maybe she wouldn't know exactly how I'd respond, but yeah. So here's the thing is you probably made those expectations clear right up in front of all your families and friends, mm-hmm. all your family and friends. You said, I will be faithful. There's probably something about that. There was a promise made there. If a spouse breaks one of those vows, we have this opportunity not to make an ultimatum, but to enforce an ultimatum that mm-hmm. we have al- we already we already either have as a as a non-expressed, which we need to verbally express these things. Or expressed in our our vows is like, this is what I expected from you. You broke that, and therefore, there are consequences. Mm. And, and, and so, what is an ultimatum? If you do this, here's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so so maybe so, that's that's a that's a helpful way to put it. Maybe, maybe even just kind of breaking through this idea of ultimatums are always wrong and going, no, not, not necessarily. There are probably good ways to go about it and bad ways to go about it, you know, in situations where it's maybe not as helpful. Um, but, but ultimately if you're laying out a boundary, if you're saying, um, you know, this is, this is where, this is as far as I'll go and I'll go no further. Um, you know, that's helpful. I think it's helpful. It's super helpful where, where I think the ultimatum is not the issue. I Mm -hmm. think ultimatum is amoral. Mm -hmm. What's that issue is the motivation. Uh, Are you using it to manipulate? Mm -hmm. And that's codependent. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. 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 So setting setting boundaries. After all I've done done for you, this is how you're going to treat me. Well, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that that came with a price. Mm. I didn't know that there was a price tag to you treating me with love and respect. (laughs) But that's the the codependent manipulation. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that passive aggressive um, manipulation that hints at these unspoken rules and unspoken expectations and sometimes unreasonable expectations. Mm. And so I, I, I love expectations in marriage. I love being able to, to be able to have these conversations and go, Oh, I guess you didn't know mm-hmm. that uh, I didn't like when you would communicate to me in a way that was embarrassing in front of other people. Mm. When you uh, when you said that in front of my my friends, when you you looked at me and said, "Hey, you look like you've been gaining some weight, John," uh, in front of my friends, I'm, okay, well, let me talk to you about that yeah. for a second. Um, well, now, now a codependent would say, "Well, that was really nice to hear that that I was fat in front of your friends. That was great." Mm. Is that yeah communication? <laughs> right. No, that is passive aggressive. Mm-hmm manipulation. Mm-hmm. I want you to feel bad and guilty. For what purpose? For you to change, but change usually doesn't happen. You just get angry and be right. like, you know, I didn't mean to do that or I didn't even, what did I do that? I didn't do that. Didn't yeah, right, so, right. You know, 
these clear <laughs> expectations where you go, hey, listen, Andy, um, I know you probably didn't do it on purpose. I love the, the book Love and Respect. Parts of that are fantastic mm-hmm. where it says, like, you know, hey, just have this. Uh, what if we just believed in the goodwill of our spouse? Mm-hmm. I believe in your goodwill. I believe you didn't mean to do this on purpose. Yeah. Um, I, I, you called me overweight in front of a bunch of people, and that really hurt. Mm-hmm. It really hurt, and it embarrassed me. If you do that in the future, you can if you want to. Mm-hmm. But if you do that in the future, I'm just going to walk right out of that conversation. So if you mm. see me walk out of that conversation, you'll know why. It's because I don't want to I don't want to dignify that with a response. I don't want to sit in that and laugh mm-hmm. even though I'm hurting inside. So if that happens again because you you've been do, you've done this a few other times, I'm walking out. Mm. Now, is that an ultimatum? No. Oh, I'm just giving you expect clear expectations. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a good, a good distinction. And I think, like you said, ultimatums, you know, the term has a negative connotation, but regardless, it's, it's an amoral thing. It's just, what is your motivation behind it? And is it, that's right. Is it manipulative? Clear is clear. Communication clear, clear is kind. Mm -hmm. I think that's a Brene Brown term. Clear is kind. Clear is kind. Yeah. We, we have a, one of our values at Ada Bible Church is, is clarity for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, John, we are we are hitting time, man. It's been fun chatting with you about this. This is uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, but I do want to ask you if we uh, if if you could leave our listeners with just sort of one or two takeaways from our conversation today. Uh, what do you feel like sort of the the top things you would love to to leave them with would be? If somebody is listening, and if it's okay, uh, they're listening and they go, hey, I think this might be a struggle for me. What's something practical I can do? I've got these four daily I will statements that it's not going to solve your problem, but can be some good self-talk around this and and, uh, be challenging to you. So, So number one is I will serve, not please others. I will serve and not please others. Two. I will look to God as my source of worth, hope, and joy. Mm-hmm. I will look to God as my source of worth, hope, and joy. Number three, I will consistently ask the question in all my human relationships, am I seeking to meet a need in myself when I attempt to meet a need in you? Number four, I will be dependent on Christ to be my one and only true higher power. That's it. Those are the four daily I will statements. They're really helpful for me. Love it. Those are great. Awesome, John. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your, your wisdom with us and your experience and one of the things I love about uh, chatting with you today is, is you're, like we said, you're not uh, an, an Ada Bible guy. You're not even a Grand, Rap- a Grand Rapids guy. You're taking time out of your schedule to come and just share some, some wisdom, some knowledge, some things you've gleaned along the way. And uh, like you said, try and help um, improve our soil over here. And so thank you so much Amen. for being here. You're welcome. Anytime. Awesome. John, uh, tell us, how, how can we get a hold of you if we want to um, chat more about this or, or hear more about your work? Well, you can reach me at recoverylive.com. Recoverylive.com. You can, you can connect with me. My email is john at recoverylive.com. And uh, yeah, we'd love, love to hear from you. Awesome. And check out uh, Recovery Live Handbook on uh, Amazon if you want to grab that. It's a, a great little process to work you through a process of recovery. You can do it with one safe and supportive person. It's a recovery live handbook. Check it out. Awesome. 
Awesome. Thanks, John. Well, together, listeners, I uh, hope, hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you uh, were able to glean some good insights and that this was impactful for you. Uh, if you'd like to, to like us and subscribe, we would love that. If you want to contact us at care at adabible.org, we'd love to hear from you as well. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Together. We hope you've learned a thing or two. If you find the podcast helpful, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform, leave a comment, and give us a five-star rating. If you'd like more information on Ada Bible Church and its ministries, or someone to pray or dialogue with about your marriage, go online and check out our website at adabible.org.